right. How we doing, 1115? All right. Man, I tell you what, I have loved some Nehemiah. You know, it's one of those things where you, you, you see uh, what's happening in Scripture, and uh, you immediately, I think, in uh, maybe, it, maybe it's just me, the uh, kind of selfish nature of the way that we read, you start putting yourself in the place of the person to see if you act like they act and you're doing the things that they're doing. Um, and this is one of those uh, passages in Nehemiah chapter 6 where um, it's, it's easy to do that, and then you start to see what he's doing and how he's acting and realize he's doing some things maybe a little differently than I would do them. Uh, and it's, uh, there's, a powerful, there's some powerful principles that I think God in his word is um, kind of pushing us towards this morning. You know, in the 1980s, uh, a guy named Lee Atwater, uh, who was a political strategist, some of you uh, maybe are that old to remember uh, when Ronald Reagan uh, um, made it to office. He was one of the guys that, that helped a movie star uh, become a president, um, which is, was kind of shocking back then. And then he, uh, you know, within a few years uh, after that, after Reagan did two terms, he became the polit- main political strategist for uh, the, four- the first uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, and, uh, you know, got him into office. You know, uh, a thousand points of light, not going to do it. Not a single time, never going to do it, not going to do it. I thought I wasn't going to do it, but I did it. Um, but he was the, uh, I know, my poor wife. She's like, it's Mother's Day. I told you not to do it. I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> sorry. Some people are laughing more than others. Um, but the guy, Lee Atwater, he was, he was incredible. Some people, I hated him because it was like all of a sudden, this is where we started to see a little bit of a political change. Certain things that we, we thought were off limits in politics kind of came into play uh, with uh, George, George Bush's campaign. It wasn't really there even in, Re- in Reagan's campaign. And he coined the, the, the phrase, perception is reality. And he said it almost in a, in a way that was diabolical uh, you know, at the time because he was saying, you know, if, if we can turn as, as political strategists, if we can... If we can make them believe. If we can create a lens for the people, then everything will shift. And that's exactly what he was able to do. And it really has shaped politics and shaped a lot of the way that that media works today. In fact, I read a book called uh, Boiling Point um, by Malcolm Gladwell years ago. So I, was, I think it was right around that time when I was, we were thinking about planning the church, like God was moving. And I was like, people said, hey, you got to read this book. It's about movements. It's about, you know, how do, how do things grow from something small? And we, we had nine people. So I was like, sweet, I'll read that book. And uh, I remember uh, right at the very beginning, talks about this idea of epidemics. Like how does, when I think about perception, Cool is one of those things that's really a perception. What is cool? Like if somebody, you know, comes into a room and say, look, all the stuff I'm wearing is cool. And you're like, maybe. Um, that's because it's like, you know, it's, it's subjective. Uh, but in, in his book, he talks about the, the, the shoe the Hush Puppy. I don't know if anybody still wears Hush Puppies. Uh, if somebody, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. If you do, then we'll all look and see if you're wearing them. But... In 1958, they were all the rage, right? But they went out pretty fast. They weren't around that long. People knew what they were, and they, you know, had kind of a little historical thing that, that happened with them. And then they kind of went away. They sold, you know, two, three, four, five thousand dollars or five thousand pairs a year. And in 1995, a couple of fashion uh, uh, people in New York City, um, they were, you know, stylists. They said, you know, we, we need a little extra edge at our next, you know, fashion show, and we're going to add some accessories. They said, let's get some old school, like vintage hush puppies. We'll put a couple of our models in hush puppies. Well, that happened. And then a few people were there, saw it, 
And then all of a sudden, Hush Puppy started appearing in a few of the nightclubs in New York City. And then it's like everywhere you walked in all of Soho and South New York, the South Manhattan, there's people cruising around with Hush Puppies on. And then within a year, sales went from 5,000 pairs a year to 1.3 million pairs of Hush Puppies. And then the following year, 10 times that. And then the following year, Hush Puppies won Accessory of the Year in Fashion Magazine or something. It was like the thing. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's perception. That is a shift in how we see things. And for you and for me, that is exactly the world that we live in. Slowly but surely, from the 1970s into the 1980s and the Lee Atwater era and into the media era, the iPhone era, all of us are being shaped, we're being crafted. Our our perception of how we see reality, how we see the world, what we deem important, is being shaped. And perception can be our reality. In fact, in uh, Psychology Today, it says this, that perception, in fact, is not reality. But admittedly, perception can become a person's reality. There's a difference because perception has a potent influence on how we look at reality. Think of it this way. Perception acts as a lens through which we view reality. Our perceptions influence how we Focus on, process, remember, interpret, understand, synthesize, decide about, and act on reality. And that's it. That's almost everything that we do in life. In doing so, our tendency is to assume how we perceive reality is an accurate representation of what reality truly is. So when we think about perception and reality and how we see things, I think about problems. Because how we view problems and how those enter into our minds, depending on how we feel about said problem, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, we're dealing with a health problem, we're dealing with a financial problem, or we're dealing with a relationship problem, we're dealing with an identity issue or an identity problem. When we look at problems, our perception of that problem can change the very way that we experience life, whether you're going to live life with joy and confidence and self-confidence or be somebody that's absolutely overcome with worry. And there's an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy every one of us that, that follows Jesus and lead us away and change our perception, wants to shift our perception so that when we have opposition, when we have problems, when we have people in our lives that are pushing us in a certain direction that's uncomfortable, there's an enemy that wants to leverage that, who wants to shift the lens away from, guess what? Away from God who you were created by and for. And what's amazing about Nehemiah is for some reason, he's got a a lens that is set and is firm in reality. He knows who God is and he knows who he is in comparison to God. And he knows who his enemies are in comparison to God. And as we dig in, we see something pretty incredible about how he deals with opposition. If you haven't been with us, Nehemiah is building the walls. In the ancient text, He was a cupbearer for the most powerful kingdom on the planet. And his heart broke for his people, the people he had never been to Jerusalem, but he knew his family members. He knew that his friends and he knew that that God's people were in disarray. So God commissions him and he goes to build the wall around Jerusalem, which will be their unifying factor, which will be their safety, which will bring them back together to do church again, to um, begin temple worship again. So he's there, but he got opposition 
on top of opposition, on top of opposition as he was building, as he was pulling people together to build the wall. So if you got your Bible, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 6 and let's watch as we see Nehemiah's perspective on problems, his perspective on trouble. Right in verse 1, it says, When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, we've talked about these guys before, they did not want Nehemiah to build the wall. They did not want the, the, the Jewish people to come back into this place of worshiping together, of aligning themselves with one God. They didn't want to have to, to, to look through one lens or perspective. They had their own ways of doing, thing, doing things. So when word came from these three guys, the rest of our enemies and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gate. So Nehemiah is saying, look, we weren't completely done, but we were almost done. We're setting the doors. We, were, we filled in all of the gaps. And then Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And I'll just say this. If anybody's asking you to go to meet at Ono, it probably is telling you not to go because it's, oh no, oh no. You don't want to go there. But as you, as you look at that, what's happening in this passage is Nehemiah is finishing the wall, miraculously finishing the wall, setting the doors. And an enemy, guys that actually um, were kind of partial family members. I mean, uh, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria and Nehemiah is the governor of Jerusalem. And they share family members, all of these guys, but they had a way of doing things and they didn't want it disrupted. They had a hold on power. They did not want that disrupted. So these guys have been trying every strategy they can think of to stop the building of the wall, to stop the, the restructuring of the Jewish culture and this God-fearing community. They didn't want it because it would affect their lives and their positions of authority. So as they got into this, they, they kept telling Nehemiah to, to jump in and get into it. If you get into to the, the end of verse 2 and verse 3, it says, But they were scheming to harm me. He knew when they were going to the Valley of Ono, or that's where they were, they were headed. He said, So I sent messenger, messengers to reply, uh, sent messengers, messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He immediately says it. They four times. They sent the same message. They kept trying to meet with him in the Valley of Ono, and each time he gave the same answer. I can't do it. I'm not going down. We'll have to stop work to do that, and we need to finish the work. And then a fifth time, Sanballat sent to me, sent an aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. So there's, he's telling them, hey, I want to meet in the Valley of Ono. Obviously, he was wanting to tell them something there. Don't know exactly what was going to go down there. You could probably you know, guess he's either going to take him out or he is going to try to persuade him strongly. It's like the, I mean, I, I kind of equate it to like Italian mafia movies. It's like, we got a meeting place. We got to go. There's going to be a friend of ours and we're going to meet there. Oh no, you know what's that. And they go there and you're either going to get whacked or they're going to really strongly convince you to do something. And that's kind of what was going on here. And each time he's like, I'm not going. Like he, he knew better. And that, that's, that's going to be a dangerous place. Not only that, he knew, I'm not going to get involved in this. And they sent an open letter. Now, an open letter was one that everybody could read. So it's getting passed from the governor of Samaria to the governor of Jerusalem, Nehemiah. So Sanballat sending it to Nehemiah. But it's an open letter. It's not stamped and sealed where nobody can open it and see what's in it. 
Each person that's carrying the letter can open it. They can share it with people. So the community knows part of that was one of the political kind of strategy of getting the media out there. So whatever this message was, Sanballat wanted not only his people to know, but he wanted all of the community in Jerusalem, Samaria, the surrounding area to know what was in this letter. Like he wanted this news to spread. He wanted to cause dissension even with Nehemiah's people. And this is what the letter said. It says it's reported among the nations and Geshem. He says it's true, which, you know, Geshem, what he says is true. It's always true, I guess, right? And he says, he says it's reported among the nations. It's so broad, it's the they. I mean, have you ever heard that? It's like, they're, they're saying things. Who are they? What'd they say? They say that's what we should eat. You know, I saw it on Instagram. They're telling me I should eat kale every day. Who are they? I hate kale. Sorry if you love kale. So he's looking at this and he's, he understands that, look, that what, what's in this is, is just going to be a, a political ploy. And if you look, it says it's reported among the nations that Gesh, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you're, you are building the wall. So the only reason you're building the wall is you're going to come against all the surrounding nations to, to us in Samaria and we don't think it's good. He says, moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become king. And you have appointed prophets to make this proclamation in Jerusalem. And he says, there is a king in Judah. And now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. This is his last ditch effort to get him to come to Ono and hang out and have a conversation or get killed. We don't know. And we don't really find out whether that's the case. But we know that he's trying to convince Nehemiah to stop building the wall and convince all of the people in the area that are helping Nehemiah to stop helping Nehemiah. That is his absolute and total goal. They want to shut it down. And he's telling them, hey, there's already a king. I'll even send news to, to Artaxerxes. Who was Nehemiah's? Like, they were friendly. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was an insider in the palace of the king before he came to build the wall wasn't just a blue-collar worker on the outside. He was one of the known dudes in Babylon. So lots of scare tactics in the open letter. And then Nehemiah simply sends in verse 8, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making this up in your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But he prays, now strengthen my hands. So he, he recognizes what's, what, what's happening, proclaims, okay, this is what's happening. They're trying to knock us off our game. And then he goes to God and says, let's pray. Let's pray about this. Let's, let's, let's ask God to strengthen our hands so that we'll never stop building the wall. We won't be distracted because we know who God is. We know who our enemy is. And we know what God's calling us to do. The story continues, just to, just to paraphrase, it doesn't, it doesn't end there. First, five times, go to the Valley of Ono and meet with us. Then the open letter comes to tell them, hey, you guys are, you know, we, we, we've heard this rumor that's happening that you're trying to be king, that you're trying to revolt. You know, he's, he's just using every scare tactic possible. And then they finally find this unsuspecting person that Nehemiah wouldn't initially suspect that comes and basically acts like he's on Nehemiah's side and says, hey, just want to let you know people are trying to kill you. They're coming in the night to kill you. And he says, we can hide in the temple. They're outside the temple talking. He says, we can hide in the temple, in this part of the temple, and 
we won't be found. And Nehemiah realizes in that moment, because of what he's asking, that this guy is not from, like, from around here. And he's actually been sent by Sanballat and Tobiah to, to make me do something wrong. Because for Nehemiah to go inside to, to, to even break the threshold of this portion of the temple would have been a sin. Would have been something very, like, you, you don't want to do it. It wasn't, I mean, there was, that was holy ground. You only entered when things were consecrated, when the, the priests had made it possible for the average citizen to go into the presence of God that way. And he's like, he knew in that moment, I'm not doing it. And he knew in that moment, I know who you are and I know who God is. And this is kind of how this situation is going down. So he rebukes that, that whole situation and says, okay, I know what's going on. They're trying to, to kill us. And then immediately he goes from that situation and he starts praying again. He says, Sanballat, Tobiah, and this crazy prophet, God, can you deal with them? Like, he, he really, I mean, in his heart and in his mind, just like he did in chapter five, he's, he's wanting something terrible to happen to him. He's like, God, can you rain down hellfire on these people? I mean, have you ever felt that way? I mean, we all have. But the beautiful thing is he's going to God with it and praying. And then you get to the end, and it almost abruptly as you... As you uh, as you jump down into verse 14 or uh, verse 16 or 15, sorry, it says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. What's crazy is we've been reading about the building of the wall for the last three chapters and it's only 52 days. There's a lot that took place, a lot of prayer, a lot of preparation, four months in fact, and it, it, the actual wall took, took 52 days, which is a contracting Miracle. I mean, Nehemiah should hand out his card to everyone in Jacksonville Beach because I know we don't have a contractor like this here. I mean, that's serious business. 52. Can you imagine a wall around Jerusalem in 52 days? And what's, what's amazing about what Nehemiah has done, it says, it says he completed it in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Like all the enemies just said, well, I guess we're done then. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They saw the miracle of 52 days. They thought, how in the world does, I mean, it's hard to get 10 people to come together and agree. But he's got the doctors, the lawyers, he's got the, the priests, he's got the pastors, the youth pastors, he's got everybody, the blue collar workers, the guys that work on the road, the guys that are chiropractors, the guys that are firemen. He's got everybody working together with their families and completes the wall in 52 days. And everybody that was looking on was watching and going, this is a miracle. Like they knew the surrounding countries that didn't want it to happen. They knew, hey, you can, we, can, we can all say what we want about Nehemiah, but this is a miracle. And we're, we're not going to, we ain't messing with them. Because they, they got, the God that's, that's fighting for them is, that's a miracle. That's a miracle creating God. That's a, that's a God that can, can do, can create this, can get people, inspire people to do these things. And I'll just say, this is the, the side note, as we kind of land in this section of scripture, of no matter what you're doing, the thing that's powerful about Nehemiah is this dude, contractor. And he, he, he built a wall to the glory of God. I mean, I think it's one of the most incredible things is I think we, we always think about how am I going to use my life and my gifts to the glory of God? I'm just this. And I'm like, 
This dude was a, he swung a hammer. I mean, this, he, he, insp he inspired people and he built a wall. And it, and it just, it amplifies for me that it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, what, what does it say in Colossians 3? No matter what you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God, right? Do, do everything to reflect the amazing nature of who God is. So no matter what you do, you have the opportunity to be a beacon, to be an amplifier in any job, in any career, to glorify God with your life and do that thing that God's called you to do. I think it's so powerful. But what, what you find in this passage and what's intriguing to me with Nehemiah is his perspective. What shaped his his strategy this entire time. How did he stay so laser focused? How did he approach trouble? I want to, I mean, that's what I, when I'm looking, like every time he faced opposition and it was on him, how did he approach trouble? I see three things here that let me know that his perspective when, when facing trouble is absolutely rooted and grounded in who God is and what he believed God to be. So how did he deal with trouble? Number one, he faced it. He didn't ignore it. I noticed as I read this passage several times and thought, look, he's, he's just brushing it off. No, he, he actually dealt with it right there at the very beginning. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them and replied, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Immediately, he addresses it. I, I wondered why he didn't ignore it. Like I, that was my, when I, when I first read it, I'm like, okay, my, sometimes my strategy when people that I, I don't like, that I don't respect, that I don't trust are texting me or asking me to meet with them, or wanting to do stuff, I sometimes I'm like, look, I don't have time. I'm just going to ignore this. I'm not going to deal with it. Like, I'm not going to, you know, I might send back, a, you know, K. Just kidding. That's offensive, apparently, especially capital K. You know, when somebody says a whole, sends you their journal entry of how they feel and what's going on in their life, and they want you to do these things for them, and you're like, K. Yeah, that says something, <laughs> apparently. So he, he does it, though. He responds. He responds directly. He, he knew. He knew something. And it's interesting, as I was reading, I just cross-referenced this in Lamentations 3, 30 through 33, and I love the way it reads in the message. It says, don't run from trouble. Take it full face. The worst is never the worst. Why? Because the master won't ever walk out and fail to return. There was a perspective in something shaping Nehemiah. He knew, look, if I, if I leave this and don't face this trouble, then it's not going away in any, in any form or fashion. Not only that, me not dealing with it is actually going to become a weapon for the enemy. If I don't say anything, they're, they're going to use that. They're going to tell everybody, look, we've tried. We, we, we've, we told them we're going to meet at Ono, and he doesn't want to meet. He, he's not, he's ghosting us. Actually, he responded K. No, he's ghosting us over and over and over again. He won't, he won't respond. He's not, he's not calling us back, not responding whatsoever. 
We're trying to mediate. We're trying to, hey, we're trying to build a community here. He saw, he knew. No, I'm going to face, I'm going to tell him and say, look, we're, I'm in the middle of a project. If I go meet with you and Ono, guess what's not going to happen? We're not going to be working. So I can't meet with you. He doesn't, he responds not once, every single time they jumped in his world and said, hey, can you meet with us? He said the same thing in return. He replied. And I think it's interesting because I think for us, when I think about trouble, and I, I do think we have to have a proper perspective on, on our trouble, but it's something like I, I, tell, I tell my boys, I think I see one of them in there, like, Abe, when you see the engine light, what do you do? Right? He's like, please don't talk to me. <laughs> if you see the engine light, you stop. You don't, you call dad, right? Engine light's on, dad, what's going on? And I don't really know. I'm going to call the mechanic or I'll call Dave. Um, <laughs> engine light comes on, you stop. Why? You don't keep, I mean, this is what, this what when I was 16, what went, went on in my mind was, I would listen, I would, I would see the engine light, and then I would, I would turn the radio down because it was on 9 million. And I would go, I would listen for the car, and if there wasn't too much smoke and it wasn't rattling too bad, I'm like, 250 more miles, we can make it, right? And then you've gone from how many, to, like you've gone from a $90 fix to, I just can't drive that anymore, right? Your problem just went, I mean, you ignored it, you didn't face it, you didn't stop and go, you know, Dad, I mean, what's the scare? Like when something happens with the car, they're, they're just nervous. They're like, I got to call dad and tell him something's wrong with the car. He's going to wonder what I did. I didn't put water in the thing. I don't know why you got to put water in the thing. I don't know what the water does in the thing because then, yes, you need to put water in the thing. It's, it's good for it. Oil, always good. So we, if, if it festers, I mean, I grew up kind of redneck. When you, like, we, we didn't go to the doctor much and you'd have things in your mouth or like you get a tooth. I got a tooth right now, it kind of hurts. But you, you leave it. And you think, ah, it'll go away. It's not going away, right? What happens? It gets worse and worse. I mean, you see your buddy and he's got something on his leg and he's like, it's kind of hot. I'm like, man, you need to get that checked out. You know what I mean? Go to the doctor. Like, go somewhere. And in this passage, what you see is you see Nehemiah. He's like, there's those moments in life where somebody calls and you know what's on the other side of it. They're like, hey, you know, can we, uh, can we talk? And you're like, you know, you, you, you know. And the, the instinct is ignore. But what's interesting, and this has happened to me time and time again, especially in conflict with people, that I make assumptions over here, and this person's making assumptions over here, and... We probably could talk, but both are ignoring. And what's happening in the middle is those assumptions are festering. You're going to bed at night. It's getting worse. You're thinking this and they're thinking this about me or they did this about me or they're saying this about me. And you get together and you have a conversation and you get it all out on the table. Guess what happens? You're like, I kind of like that guy. You can be instantly you realize, oh, this was nothing. But in the, in the absence of truth, in the absence of, of talking, that's where things fester. And in the absence of truth, people make up their own, right? But Nehemiah comes and he just says very quickly, I'm going to face this trouble and I'm going to tell him exactly what's going on. Because if I don't, then it's just going to fester. It's just going to continue. So face it. Now, these go together. I think there's no way to really separate one and two. The second one is surrender it. 
Don't get distracted by it. Like when you, when you have trouble, surrender it. You've got this moment where it's all happening and he's getting this open letter because he's not gone you know, and met these guys at Ono. All he's done is respond to their ask and said, nope, I can't meet, I gotta work. And then they say, okay, all right, we're gonna send this letter, an open letter that everybody's gonna read. We're gonna accuse him of being, you know, in open rebellion to the king that he's planning a revolt. That's the only reason he's building the wall. He wants to be king. So all this is going on. People are talking. They, you know, because they're always talking. And in verse 8, it says, I sent them a reply to the letter. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up in your head. So he's addressing it. He's facing it, right? He says, they were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. They'll get scared. And it will not be completed. And then immediately he says, but I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. He's like, let's just pray and get back to work. I mean, there's, there's some simplicity there, but there's such power there. And then in verse 14, after the whole thing happens with him at the temple, and the guy goes, look, you're going to get killed. You're going to get, get killed tonight. Let's, let's dive into the temple. We'll hide here tonight. Verse 14, this is what Nehemiah does with his trouble. He says, remember to buy in Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nodiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. What's he doing? He's surrendering it. Like for me, this is where things go wrong for me. Maybe I'll go in and I'll face it. But the idea of, of one thing you find with Nehemiah is he, every time he has people opposing him, you don't see him immediately leaving that situation and dropping bombs of, of frustration with Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. You never do. He's not going and going, can you believe this and what this is, what's happening and how things are going down? Can you believe all the stuff? In Enduring Word, which some of you will look at in your city group, it says that his response was very brief. He didn't get wordy and he didn't go around talking to everybody else about it. It seems for, for me, I think sometimes when things like this happen, it's like, let's have a discussion. It's like somebody calls and says, okay, here's some trouble. Here's a bomb. Here's something that's happening with people or here's something that's happening in life. And what do you do? Immediately you pick up the phone. Hey, guess what? And then there's a bunch of guess what's and people are, I've been in, uh, in the room. You can hear somebody talking, even with Beth and she's talking. She's like, wow, that I'm, I'm over there going, what, what happened? You know, I got to find out. And it becomes these discussions and things that are, that are happening. And then people start talking, you know, and then you have to have a meeting about the stuff. It's like, okay, we got to have a meeting. And then we're going to have what? A meeting. Oh, we had a meeting, but now those people are like, we got to have a meeting about the meeting. And we're going to talk about, it's like, well, I told them we were going to Ono. And they said, we don't, we can't go to Ono. A place like Ono, why would you go to Ono? That's where people die. You don't go to Ono, but they told me to go to Ono. And then they said, we're going to do the thing. And, then, and they're talking about everything. And we talk about everything. But guess what's happening while we're talking? Well, guess what's not happening? We ain't working. The wall's not getting built. And there's, yes, we want to face it and not ignore it. You don't want to go, oh, you know what? I got stuff to do. I can't answer the text or I can't do the thing or I can't address the issue with my bank account. I can't address the issue with my health. I'm just going to ignore it and hope that something you know, miraculous happens without prayer. I'm just going to keep grinding. No, you got to face it. You got to deal with it. Don't let it fester. But we also want to surrender it to God instead of explode all over people or get defensive. My, my default 
when I feel like there's some sort of accusational thing that happens, I'm, I'm defensive because I'm right most of the time. Good, I'm glad you laughed. I'm not. I'm just saying it's what I do. It's what you do. It's like I've got, I'm going to create all the justification I need for all of the things that I'm doing. You notice Nehemiah doesn't do that. He's like, I don't need to do this. This guy's making it up out of his head. I, can't, I don't need to prove to him why we're building the wall. I don't need to prove to him that I don't want to, want to be king. I don't need to prove to him that I haven't hired a bunch of prophets. He doesn't go through any of that. He doesn't go talk to his people. He doesn't say, hey, what do we do? We got to do it. What do we do? No, he just says directly, what you're saying is untrue. This is, this is, I don't know where this is coming from. It seems like something you've made up in your head. And then he gets back to work. But before he does, he prays twice. Once he says, strengthen our hands. The other time he says, God, all these things that I want to do to these guys, I know I can't do, so I'm going to lay them before you. It's like it says in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Hand those people over to me. I am a just God that will take care of business. And, and Nehemiah knows that and lays, surrenders them. You see, what we get stuck doing is doing the same thing over and over again, thinking that it's going to, we're going to, we're going to fix it. That's what I do. I keep headed, I, keep, I stay in that area. Talk too much, over talk it. It's like we end up in spaces. And sometimes it's like, it just needs to be handed off to God and let God deal with it. And Nehemiah knew in that moment that God's, God, God could deal with these guys. And he knew what his job was. And he didn't want to be distracted by it. Anybody seen Survivor? Like if you've seen at least one episode of Survivor. Yes. Okay, context. Good. Jeff Propes, you, you know him. You know, it's like, it's like Survivor. You know, they've got all the deals. You've got the, the two tribes. Like in the beginning, before you're individual trying to win a million dollars, you're trying to at least make it into the what? What is it? The merge, right? And you've got people are playing these stupid games, and they're trying to get through. And they've got stuff like, you know, throw the coconut in the hoop, and then you move on to the puzzle, and you've got things like that. And they always pick the people for the stuff. They're like, okay, you've played in the NBA. You're coconut hoop guy. You should do that. You're the NFL guy. Yeah, you're the one that's going to do the mud wrestle and slap the person and take the ball from them and dunk it in the deal. I mean, they always have somebody that does it, right? And then what inevitably happens is the coconut hoop guy goes up there, or the guy that thinks he's the coconut hoop guy, and he's like, he, whatever day, he's got the yips. I don't know what's going on. And the coconut cut his hand, gave him a little splinter, and he's missing every single time. And the guy that's the legit coconut hoop guy is standing over there like this going, you know, like, oh, and the, the camera pans over to him and everybody knows, give it to coconut hoop guy. Why don't you give it up? You know, and the guy's sitting there. And finally, the dude, go, the dude just kind of looks at the other guy, goes, come on. And he runs up there and coconut hoop guy's like, sling, sling, sling. And then they run to the puzzle and they win the whole thing, right? Because he finally did what? Surrendered. He said, you know what? I, there's coconut hoop guy. Why would I even put my... So he just realizes, hey, I thought I was coconut hoop guy. I thought I could do it. I thought, you know, I really knew that he was good at it, but I thought, this is my shot. I can be good at this. This is my, my thing. But no, surrender. Give it up. Because then what happens? You can move on to the puzzle and win a million dollars. Instead of sitting there the entire time with the clocks going, right? In life, I, I can't tell you how many times when it comes to relationships, when it comes to people, when it comes to problems. We, we keep ourselves in the position of quarterback. And the thing that makes Nehemiah so powerful, and he seems to be, you could preach it this way, like he's the quarterback. He's not the quarterback. God is the quarterback. And God is running the show. 
Nehemiah occasionally gets to run a play, but he knows I got my limited window. I'm building the wall. Everything else I'm surrendering and putting at the feet of the one that can handle anything, the creator of the universe. It's what we need to do. I was thinking, I didn't say this in the first one, but um, you're 11.15, you get the good stuff. My mom, yesterday, I took her out for an early Mother's Day gift, went to, went to breakfast, and yes, I did pay for it. Um, sometimes my mom, she's like, no, you can't pay for it, you're my son. And I'm like, I, it's Mother's Day, I'm paying for the breakfast. Um, and so we, we had breakfast, and, and moms often cannot surrender their children. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, is that the case with Dave? You still mother him like he's 12? It's what they do, it's, it's what my mom does. So she comes to the deal. We have a wonderful breakfast. And by the end, I know what's going to happen. She's going to hand me vitamins. Uh, she's been doing this since I was six and I'm 52 and she keeps doing it. It's like, here's the truckload of vitamins. And she gives me balance of nature, too much Fox News. And I'm like, come on, you know, it's, it's great. So she's giving me the vitamins, which I love. Thank you. And I've learned not to argue with her. Like, mom, this vitamin, I've so, no, you, I know you saw it on Instagram or something. I don't need that. I don't argue. I just thank you so much every time she gives me vitamins. Um, and we laugh about it now. It's a big joke. Like, eat, drink your orange juice, eat your vitamins. And, but what she does do, and this is the thing that makes this, this is, this is why I love my mom. She, at the end of our breakfast, she says, can I pray for you? And I said, absolutely. And, and I had some specific things I needed her to pray for. And we, she says, let's go sit in your car. And we sat in the car and she prayed for me. And I, I, was, I was almost in tears. I wasn't quite crying, but I just, it made me think, this is my mom doing exactly what God would have us do, which is not be the hero, but give the hero all of the things that you need and say, hey, hero, I need you to do these things for, for me. And that's prayer. We're surrendering our lives to God. Prayer is absolutely, and who is the guy, the, the guy that prays? He spent four months in prayer, 52 days building the wall, four months worshiping, praying, and fasting with his people. And then what, what does he do? Things happened because God was on it. And my mom, she knows the vitamins, you know, I'm just like, surrender the vitamins, just start praying. It's so powerful. And that leads me to the only way that, that we can face it and surrender it is if we resize it and don't lose perspective on it. When I, when I say resize it, we have to resize our problems and we have to resize man because we have a big thing in our, in our culture with the approval of people and how we see how people see us that, that puts us way out of whack with what's right when it comes to our relationship with God. What's right, what's, where joy is actually found. So we resize it. Look what he does in verse 11. He says, he's, he's in the whole deal with the temple situation. He says, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? He says, I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him. He says, I will not go. Do you know why he wouldn't go? Because he knew how big God was. He knew how small his enemies were. He knew how big God was and he knew how small his problems were in comparison to God. Not in comparison to him. He knew who he was and he knew who God was. And he's like, why would I ever, because I'm worried about what man thinks, sin against God? He's like, there's no way. The, and, and what he's doing right there is he's right-sizing it. 
He's getting perspective on who God is. And it's the reason that he was able to face it. It's the reason that he was able to surrender it. And it's the reason that he always, in every situation, he right-sized his issues and he right-sized his opposition. Our problem is we have a, a broken view of who God is. I feel like it's one of the primary purposes of the word of God to lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ so that our brain, our mind, our heart, and our soul gets reframed and right-sized to see exactly how much God loves us, how much he cares for us, how big he is in comparison to us. I love that David in Psalm 8 didn't even have a scope of how big the universe was, said, you've set the sun, the moon, the stars in place. And at that time, I'm guessing they all thought the world was flat, so their perspective was broken. But he had enough perspective, enough that God gave him the perspective to know, hey, whatever those things are floating in the sky, those are big. And you created them, yet you're mindful of me. You care for me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know every hair on my head. You know what that is? Perspective. He was right-sized and reframed. But for us, I have this picture because I think for us, we understand what this picture is. Like we laugh in some ways. Wait, there's a buzzing right now. <laughs> skewing my perspective. Thank you. They're like, we didn't do anything. Um, so we, we know what this is, right? We, we see it and we're like, okay, that's funny. It's a guy, he's holding the sun. But you can't hold the sun because the sun's too massive. It's too big. I mean, it's so crazy to even think about humans in comparison to the sun that's 93 million miles away. You can fit 1.3 million earths inside of the sun's volume. I mean, that is, it's not even in the ballpark. That's what makes this funny, is that scope. But for us, we often make our problems massive and we forget and we, we kind of put God in that frame. We're like, well, we gotta go get God now. And we bring him on the scene. That's the, that's the God we carry. He looks cool in the, in the photo, but he ain't real big. But that's not because he's not big. It's because that's your perspective. And that all has to do with distance, doesn't it? Right? The reason that that picture looks the way that it looks is because the dude's right in front of you and the sun is 93 million miles away. It's the same problem that we have. Our problem is right in front of us. It's massive. It's sitting there as big as it could be. It's why we grind on it. It's why we, it's, it, it dominates our mind. But the, the other half of that problem is God is 93 million miles away in our own mind. We've got him at such a distance. And, and what, what Nehemiah has done and the why, why he sees it is he's closing the gap with every prayer, every time he goes to God, every time he surrenders, every time he remembers, every time he sings a song about Jesus, every time he proclaims that, God's, that his blood poured out is the ultimate sacrifice for my sin. When divinity, when God himself on a throne meets our sin, blood is spilled. When we start to sing that, when we start to see that, what's happening? The perspective is changing. And guess what? No longer 93 million miles away, God's right here in our face. And when he's in our face, guess what that does to our problems? They shrink. They're minuscule. Yes, there's a mountain in front of you, but man, that mountain's not, not even close to the size of my God who created that sun that you can fit 1.3 million earths in. It's a skewed perspective that we walk, walk around with on planet earth. 
Even his enemies gained perspective at the end of the day. They're like, whoo, 52 days? That God is big. They knew. And I don't know where you are or what your perspective is, but one of my, one of my favorite stories in scripture and it's one of the reasons that we gather is this. When I see this, I think about the beauty and the power of church. In Leviticus chapter nine, the Israelites are all together. There's two million Jews. They're, they're, they had been, they'd gotten Egypt. Plagues had happened. They're headed, they're across the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness. Like worship is starting to happen in, in, the, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. Moses is leading that with his brother Aaron. And they've got a bull on tap for sacrifice for God. And they're like, how do we know if God accepts our sacrifice? So they pray. They're all hanging out together. Two million people gather around the tent of meeting. Can you imagine? I mean, you imagine a big church service. This is a big church service. They're all as close as they can get to see, okay, we're going to make this sacrifice to God. A bull. That's what God told us to do. And they pray. And guess what happens? Fire shoots down from heaven in Leviticus chapter 9. Do you imagine? Fire shooting down, burns everything, annihilates it. Like just everything. It says all the fatty portions, everything on the altar is burned. Only thing left is the stone of the altar. That's it. It's gone. It's evaporated. Basically saying, okay, I'll take this. It's God going, nice job. And guess what they do? Everybody, it says, praise God with everything that they had. Could you imagine two million people? They're like, they see the fire shoot from heaven. They're like, woo! I mean, it's like that moment when you're waiting for the fireworks, at, you know, the pier, but a lot bigger. I mean, they're just like, woo! And then immediately they're excited because this God, the God that's burning the sacrifice, he's on our side. He's our God and we're his people. Immediately they're also like, fire just shot from heaven. And then they all fall face down. Two postures that are so beautiful. But all it tells you is in those moments right there, Everything's right-sized and framed the way that it should be. And then posture, face down, all the way to the ground. I cannot believe that I'm alive. We should all be dead. God has mercy on me. That fire could have been me. That could have been on me, but I'm alive. It's the, it's the right-sizing of the perspective. And that's the beauty of church. It's not, this isn't a place we just learn the Bible. That's a, that's a byproduct. It's great to learn the Bible. It's, it's great to sing songs. But the, the beauty of today is that, that, that you and I might get a glimpse. We might get a glimmer. We might get what, what the apostle Paul says. We see dimly on this side of heaven, but that's all we need. Some, someday we're going to see face to face and we're really going to know. We're really going to see his glory. We're going to see what John saw, the, the sword coming out of the mouth, the eyes shining like the sun, the, the hair, white wool. We're going to see all the stuff and we're going to, it's going to blow us away. But we see dimly. We need a glimpse and we come together and we gather just like this in church to sing these songs in unison. Why? To right-size our heart to right size, to give us a hope beyond hopes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when you walk out of these doors, it's not just, hey, let's go get some V's pizza. That was nice. It's, I, it changes the way that I face my week. It gives me joy and hope with every problem, with everything that's going on in my family, with everything that, that I sometimes view. God's laid all this stuff on me. No, God wants you to take all the stuff off of you and lay it on him because his burden's light. He can carry it. It's what he, it's who he is. Let's stand together. I don't know where you've come from, but God is, he's so much bigger than we can conceive. 
but he also is more loving than you could possibly imagine. We were in our pre-service prayer gathering and um, Aaron said that, that God wants people to know just how much he loves you. And I think that's absolutely true. This is not just about how big God is. This is about how loving God is. That we would get our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the, the reframing that the centurion had in front of the cross. The same man that spat on Jesus, that, that made fun of him, that stuck a sign that said, King of the Jews on the cross. The same guy ends up standing in front of the cross with his mouth wide open as the blood's being spilled out, the water comes out, the piercing of the side, as the, the earth shakes, as the sky grows dark, he says, surely this man is the son of God. It's a reframing. And that's a picture of God's love for you. And somebody walked in here and that's what you, you feel unloved. You feel like you, you, there's no way you could get close to God. And I'm telling you right now, God is bringing you as close as he possibly can. 